Hi, this is Tom Kemp, author of Containing Big Tech, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 340 for September 4th, 2023. Uh, a couple quick things before we get to our wonderful interview with Tom Kemp. I am now officially on Blue Sky or whatever that's worth. I, I don't know that it's worth much of anything, especially because right now it's still closed. It's invite only. And I managed to get an invite uh, a while back and I used it kind of for a personal account that I kind of lurked around with. And then my personal account had invites to give. So I invited myself to have a business account. And I'm, so now I have my official Firewall Dragons uh, account on Blue Sky. So if you're on Blue Sky, you know, maybe follow me there. I will try to probably post on Blue Sky kind of like I currently do on Twitter and Mastodon. I'll announce podcast episodes as they drop and maybe hot news items. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I have no idea how that's going to go. I'm still waiting on Panquake, actually. I don't know. We interviewed Susie Dawson about Panquake, uh, the founder, uh, a while back earlier this year. And uh, I was super excited. It just I'm not sure where things stand. I've been checking in to see what's going on and no news on that yet. As I find out more, I'll let you know. But for now, anyway, long story short, I'm on Blue Sky. You can always find all my social media stuff uh, on the website, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. If you look under contact, all my social media stuff is there as well. Okay, so interview. Today, I'm going to be talking with Tom Kemp. Uh, I had a great discussion with him. He just got a brand new book out. We actually interviewed this back in late July. So at that time, his book was not out. It is now out. So as you hear this, know that his book is now available. In fact, I have my own copy right here in my hot little hands. And I cannot wait to read it. Anyway, so Tom and I are going to talk about the dark and seedy world of data brokers who they are, how they get your data, what they do with that data, what that data is worth, uh, and the implications of this honestly unfettered wild, wild west of private data harvesting. It's just nuts here in the United States. It's crazy. Uh, we are finally starting to make some headway on some legislation, particularly at the state level. We're going to talk a little bit about that today and why it is so important. And I I realize at this point that a lot of us know our data is being harvested. We're probably not too happy about that. When given a real choice, we say no. And honestly, right now, there just aren't real choices available to us. And that's what some of these regulations are trying to solve. But there's also very little transparency. And that is part of what we're going to get into today is, is realize what's really going on behind the scenes and how it's just getting worse. So that, I think, is actually enough of a setup. And let's get into this wonderful discussion with Tom Kemp on Data Brokers. Tom Kemp is a Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur, investor, and policy advisor. Tom is the, also the author of a book that's just going to be coming out very soon called Containing Big Tech, How to Protect Our Civil Rights, Economy, and Democracy. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me on, Kerry. The book looks really interesting. I cannot wait to get it, uh, to read it, uh, but we're going to cover, I think, a lot of really important parts of that today. So not that you won't need to read the book, but uh, I'm looking forward to picking your brain on some of these things because I know the book's going to talk about a lot of these, so... Uh, we're going to talk about data brokers, uh, and I, you know, I read news articles about these all the time on the show because our data is being, you know, siphoned left and right and used for not just marketing purposes. But I, I, we just had a whole bunch of articles last week about how law enforcement is getting access to this data, essentially working around the Fourth Amendment. So it's it's a really important thing, and I and I know that a lot of us 
today know about these kind of tangentially or vaguely like yeah they're they whoever they are are collecting my data and they're they're selling it they're trading it they're you know doing all these nefarious things but we don't really see it and there's we don't have laws that expose it so there's really low on transparency and so i really want to kind of paint a picture today and have people have a better understanding of what's going on behind the scenes so let's start with the basics what are these data brokers who are they really uh, are they companies that we would recognize or are these like shadow companies that just deal in data that we've never heard of yeah. So the definition of data broker is a business that knowingly collects and sells to third parties the personal information of a consumer with whom the business does not have a direct relationship. And that actually is a legal definition mm. in various state laws and including in California. And so the key thing is, is that the businesses that we interact directly with directly with like a, a Walmart, a Walgreens, uh, a Meta, a Google, that's really what we can call first party data, that we, mm -hmm. we have a direct relationship with those entities. But there's these entities that we don't have a direct relationship with, call it third party data. And those are data brokers that also collect all our information from multitudes of sources. We'll talk more about that later, probably. And um, we don't know who they are. And now, there's actually different types of data brokers, but some of the big names are, for example, the, the three big ones in financial information, which is Experian, Equifax, TransUnion. Mm -hmm. We're probably mm -hmm. familiar with those. Yep. Um, there's though, Mark... I, though I bet a lot of people don't necessarily think about them as data brokers. They think but, about but technically, they are. They, they, yep. they are, but they, they also, but because they fall under, in some cases, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that they don't, they're actually not regulated as a data broker. Um, there's some that are in the marketing areas, such as Axiom, Epsilon, and Oracle. Oracle, we all know, but they've actually bought a boatload of, of data brokers. Right. Uh, and then there's other ones that we haven't heard of them. The vast majority, to be candid, we have no clue who they are, and they like not to be known. <laughs> right. And how many of them are there? I've seen estimates, you know, anywhere from 2,500 to 4,000, like I think in the U.S. alone, but they're probably global companies as well. Like how many of these are, are out there? That I've seen estimates of, of yes, yeah, 25 to 4,000. Uh, it is a very big and growing industry. It's the, the market is projected to be about uh, – 345 billion in 2026. So it's wow. it's big business and some of these companies, you know, these are multi-billion dollar businesses that collect all our information and they're they're in the shadows. But that seems weird though it's in the sense that are they all like highly specialized because like in big tech there's been all this consolidation and a lot of these big companies just you know buy up all the small companies so there's you know, if you think of online advertisers, it's Google and Facebook and there's, you know, there's not a lot else. But why are there so many data brokers? Are they all in their own little niches or is it just a, how does it work that there's so many of them? Yeah, I mean, so some of them have moved into multiple. I mean, there's like four or five types of data brokers in terms of the type of information they collect. And you'll actually find that some of them will be in multiple categories of data brokerage. But there is a lot of specialization. A lot of the specialization does occur based on the type of information they get. For example, there are data brokers that just focus on healthcare-related data, that, those, that they suck up our transactions related to healthcare 
purchases of you know over-the-counter medicines that they may have hooks into medical-oriented mobile apps that are not covered by HIPAA. And then they'll sell that information to pharmaceuticals and also insurance companies as well. And so to give you a feel for like the breadth uh, of data, that there's one company that they say that they collect over 11,000 personal attributes, such as our religion, income, family members, cell phone numbers, for 2.5 billion people. And there's only oh, eight, pil- there's only, they have 11,000 pieces of distinct data for 2.5 billion, and there's only 8 billion people uh, in the world. So yeah, there's a wide diversity, but there has been some consolidation across the different segments of data brokerage. Well, and you mentioned that, and I saw one of the articles you read, uh, which may have been an expert excerpt from your book, upcoming book, that talks about the types of data brokers. And you broke them down, I think, into five different categories. Can you kind of walk through what that breakdown is of these types of data brokers? Absolutely. So the, the first is what we mentioned before. It's the financial information brokers, and that's the big three, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And these are the credit reporting agencies that compile consumer reports and generate credit scores to determine our credit worthiness. Okay, so that's one aspect of the data broker industry. And it's really consolidated into three. Then you have risk mitigation brokers. And some some of the examples uh, include employment screening companies like ADP, backgroundcheck.com, and Checker. Then you even have tenant screening companies that include mm. RealPage, RentGrow, Trans, TransUnions in this space. And they offer products to verify customers' identities and detect fraudulent purchase patterns. The third category is marketing and advertising brokers, and those are Axiom, Epsilon, Oracle, and they have various products and services that help businesses engage in targeted marketing, most of which is online. And what they do is they segment and categorize customers based on demographics or behavior and they offer up buckets of consumers to be targeted by advertisers. They also offer what they call it a pen services. So if they just have a business will just have a name of someone that they can go in and they can supply the email address, the mailing address or corrected information as well to better target you either online or even direct marketing. The fourth category is people search brokers. And Hmm. these are probably the most well-known because if you Mm -hmm. Google yourself, if you put, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, carry and you put your your uh, home address then all of a sudden you start seeing your your yeah. name pop up and you have like companies like zoom, zoom info white pages people smart intellius people finders the, the list goes on mm-hmm. and they enable searches for information about consumers the scary thing is is that because they consolidate information from so many sources it's scary to see when you google your own name like oh how do they know who my aunt is that has a different mm-hmm. last name so they right. kind of build this graph of, of your connections. And then finally, as we mentioned before, that there's these personal health brokers. And it turns out there's Experian has a division called Experian Health, Oracle's in this business, Axiom and Epsilon. And these collect, sell consumers' health data to pharmaceutical and health insurance companies. And they get data from over-the-counter drugs, geriatric supplies, weight loss supplements, contact lenses, health-related magazine subscriptions, Mm -hmm. um, if you buy insurance, et cetera. So they know what ailments. They know if you have diabetes. They know if uh, you went to a drugstore and searched for Adderall or Plan B. 
They probably even know if you're pregnant or not. So that's the level of, of detail that they have. Well, that was one of the the classic scary data broker stories was the the story about the the household that was getting ads for, hey, it looks like you're pregnant. Here's some coupons for Target. Turns out for the teenage daughter was pregnant, but she hadn't told her parents yet. But the yes. Target figured it out based on her buying habits because newly expected mothers tend to get these kind of vitamins and these kind of unscented wipes yeah. and prenatal yeah prenatal yes. vitamins, et cetera. Absolutely. <sighs> so you mentioned the the big three credit bureaus uh, as one of the five types. Uh, now, outside the U.S., my, they don't have they don't have these kind of things. When I talk to people about credit scores outside the U.S., a lot of people uh, that I've talked to in for another, like in the Europe, for example, are like, "Huh, we don't have that." Uh, are there, so how do how do these things how do these differ maybe with regulation or just with different practices around the world versus in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, some of it uh, exists. I mean, there are risk mitigation brokers in Europe, for example, to detect fraud. So it really depends on you know, how the regulations have been been drafted to the extent that some of these data brokers could kind of have exemptions for themselves. But yeah, a lot of this stuff is banned in Europe mm-hmm. or you actually have to explicitly opt in. The, the, the fundamental problem in the US is that there is no regulation uh, right. uh, of this. And man, I mean, it, the, the sources of information is just, uh, maybe you want me to talk about the sources of information? Because sure. it just, your, your mind gets starts getting blown away when you hear about this. Okay, so they get sources of information from, I'm gonna call it offline sources. They get information from property records, purchase history, uh, uh, you know, divorce proceedings, you know, contracts, uh, et cetera. So they get offline sources of information, stuff that you would file with the government, but they also get hooks into businesses. So if you sign up for uh, your grocery store's loyalty card <laughs> yep. or or your airlines or whatever, they know what hotels are staying. They, know, I mean, it's more valuable in a lot of cases for the grocery stores to sell who's bought diapers and a, a can of soup than the margins that they get from selling the can of soup, right? right. And then, uh, then, of course, they know what websites you visited through third-party cookies, such as like maybe you visit a website on depression. They know your credit card purchases because they uh, have hooks into the loyalty programs or they directly work with vendors and they have complete access to credit card purchase. So maybe they know if you bought adult diapers. And then with the apps that you've installed, that they have SDKs um, embedded and oftentimes that's how the apps monetize. Mm -hmm. And so they know that if you've installed a gay dating app or a Muslim prayer app, and then finally, these hooks into these apps also allow them to know exactly your location, because even if you're not actively using the app, the app itself can transmit your, your geolocation. And then finally, it turns out that data brokers oftentimes buy and sell and trade data amongst themselves. So it's really basically almost at the end of the day, it's almost impossible to trace how a data broker obtained your data because of all the feeds and sources of data and including other data brokers as well. But what you can quickly see is that maybe a data broker has 10 pieces of data about you. Another one has 15, another has 30. But once you combine these together, they can paint a pretty detailed picture of who you are, et cetera, but occasionally, not occasionally, but oftentimes the data 
has some errors in it. And so, and, and a lot of life decisions are based on the scoring that comes from data brokers. So that actually can introduce some problems uh, as well. So it, it's crazy, just the amount of data they have. Yeah, it is absolutely crazy. And there's ones, I think most of us think, oh, there's probably these cases where, you know, I signed up for a newsletter and there was a checkbox saying, you know, please send me other things or please include me in your quality improvement program or whatever that really means let me track you. Uh, in, in that I well, might have warranty missed, cards, it, like you know, like you buy oh, a refrigerator, yeah. and they say yeah. fill this out to get information on warranty. What they do is they actually take the inform, like you put in your serial number, your this, that, or whatever. Yes, the company has that, and so maybe if there's a recall of your refrigerator, they'll contact you, but they'll immediately turn around and sell it as well because now there's all this detailed demographic information that they ask about you as well. So also warranty information is a source of information. And some of those things are things like, okay, well, fine, you know, I sent the card and I guess I should, you know, I'll take some of the blame. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But there are a lot of these cases where they're, where we're giving our data away and we don't really understand how it was we gave it away. For example, when you talk about the financial stuff, we are not clients usually of, of TransUnion, Experian, Equifax. My understanding is, is the way that they got permission to do that is because the whole credit industry has these things built in. This was part of the fine print of the credit card we applied for or the loan we applied for or the bank account that we opened. It's buried somewhere in there that we that we say, well, if you're going to participate with this, then we as a bank or a financial institution participate in this broader campaign of gathering all this data on you so that we can get a credit score for you. And, and that's where you signed up for that. It, sometimes when you go to the doctor, there's... They have a third-party portal for checking in and whatever, but that third-party portal is not the doctor, and it may not be covered by HIPAA. There, oh, yes. It, so that there's also a lot of places where we unknowingly give up our data and maybe didn't really have – it. we have this notice and consent fiction as far as I'm concerned in the United States. It's it's not viable. It doesn't work. But I think we're trained to believe, oh, it's on you. You you screwed up somewhere. You gave somebody your data. But there's so many cases where we're – you couldn't help doing it. Well, yeah, you, you're given, you check into a doctor's office and you're given like all the, I mean, who has time to read this? Or like, you know, if you brought up like the Apple privacy policy, I mean, it's, you print it out, it's 20 pages and you're not going to send red lines back to Tim Cook, right? You know, either <laughs> right. you accept it or you don't, right? And so it's it's kind of like you're, and of course you have to sign up for a lot of these services, right? Um, et cetera, because otherwise you can't do business. So it's, it's yeah, it it's, it's not necessarily, in some cases they do trick you, but other cases it's buried in the fine print. And uh, what's really needed is the ability for consumers to kind of fight back. And you know, no doubt we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about it a little bit. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the economics of this, the data economy. How, how does that actually work? Like behind the scenes, we don't, we don't really see this. So who really is making money and how exactly are they making money on all this data we're collecting? Obviously, like the one we're probably most familiar with is advertising. So, and you know, and Facebook and Google actually make a big deal out of the fact that we don't sell your data because they sell access to our data. <laughs> because yes. the data is the, the data is the gold to them, you know, so that is where they're making their money. But in some of these other cases, like for instance, when, if my grocery store pharmacy is, is giving me over the counter or prescription drugs and out the back door, they're selling, Hey, Carrie just bought this stuff you might want to know about who is making money on that. Exactly. Like where's the, and then like, what is my data worth? Do we have any, any idea of what this kind of information is worth? And is some worth a lot more than others? Well, what is the real financial aspect of this? Yeah, I mean, you could just like in the case, I mean, meta 
is 97% advertising and they publish that they have X billion number of users and you can just divide their annual revenue by the billion of users. In, in the US, each user gives them the equivalent of 170, roughly approximately $170 per year. So, wow. um, you know, because you just take a look at what's their US revenue, how many you know monthly average users do they have in the U.S. and then you do do the math and there you go right mm, okay and that's gone up right and, and so that gives you a feel for the type of uh, value and maybe that's more at the premium level because they have the whole advertising ecosystem mm-hmm. and you know maybe your data is maybe cents on the dollar for a data broker but yeah I mean. At the marketing advertising that they oftentimes will, will also share their data as a complement to the ad tech systems that the big tech companies run to provide additional information to help the real-time bidding for, for advertisements. Uh, but in other cases, you know, if you're a, a company and you've got partial information about your customers, um, you will go and buy millions of records and have that append service add additional information to your database and that's a that's a great example uh, of just flat out selling the information on the marketing side obviously you have um, on the geolocation side of things that people will use the data to look at foot traffic into specific stores or buildings to help them decide whether or not they're going to open up a new Starbucks or a new new Mm -hmm. retail place. So there's a lot of usage of this data and it it has value that could either be shared in terms of facilitating behavioral advertising, or it could just flat out be sold. And uh, and it would be bought by businesses to do things from analyzing foot traffic to appending data, just to be in a database that they can now sell more diapers to, or sell, as you said, you know, Target will advertise to you know pregnant people prenatal vitamins. Well, and I I think another interesting aspect of this is some of the companies that are doing this, like for example, uh, cameras in stores. Uh, a lot of times they were used like you said, just to kind of judge foot traffic. I just, I don't know who these people are, but let me see how many people are coming in and out of my door and what time they're coming in and out of the door. How many people hang around these end caps? Does this sale thing that I put up seem to be working as an attracting attention? And then I, I've read articles about companies that say, you know, hey, we can, <laughs> if you give us access to your camera data, and they do this with lots of companies or perhaps like a big company like Home Depot, like a Home Depot's got security cameras. And, a, and I, I think this is where I read the article. A company came in and said, well, we can monetize that for you beyond <laughs> just doing, you know, security stuff. If you let us do facial recognition on this and hook it up to our databases, we can start telling you not just how many people are in your store, but who they are, which particular person stayed in the store for how long and, where, and what was their path through the store and, and things like that and start to monetize this data. DMVs. We, we think of, we hate that we all hate our, our DMVs or BMVs in the United States because they're always so slow and, and whatever. But at some point, I don't know when this started happening. They started selling data about us at the back door as well to, I'm sure to, to monetize and just make more money. How many other things like that would we really be surprised about? What, what are some other cases where we, we would be shocked to maybe find out that somebody is selling our data at the back door? Well, I think it's the the biggest use case nowadays of selling data is at the mobile app level. And mm. and so people 
people offer these free apps and like free games, etc. And yeah, free maybe you could quotes, but you can't see me doing air quotes, but free. Yeah, free. Exactly. And you, you, yeah, maybe some of them serve some ads inside the games, which is annoying, but really the most valuable thing is the location data, right? And what some of these location data brokers utilize is that they actually have agreements not with one mobile mobile app vendor but hundreds or thousands mm. and as i said before the apps themselves even if they're not actively being used the fact that they're on the plane uh, on the um, on the phone excuse me they'll send the data back and and now in the case of web technology there's first party cookies and then there's third-party cookies, and in your browser you can block third-party cookies, and you can just have the first-party cookies just to interact directly with the the, the domain that mm -hmm. you're on, and it remembers who you are, etc. The problem in the mobile space is that the mobile app vendors will have these SDKs, software development kits from the data brokers embedded in them, mm -hmm. and then when you install the app, it asks for permission: Can I use your camera? Can, but the thing they care most about is is the location or but sometimes they'll say, can I share your data? And you think you're sharing the data just with the mobile app provider, but any right. SDKs, it's basically they're holding the door open and they're telling, come on guys, you can come in too to the party right. as well, right? And so, right. and they load up their apps with these SDKs. They don't only sign a deal with one data broker, they may want to sign a deal with 20 data brokers and then they they get paid as the the, the location data gets fed into these data brokers, et cetera. And even at one point, like for example, Burger King ran a promotion in which if a customer's phone was within 600 feet of a McDonald's, the Burger King app would let the user buy a Whopper for one cent. I mean, so <laughs> the, so they know, I mean, so it's also like, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, the tracking of people's precise movements. And that's the really that, to me, that's kind of the creepiest because now, uh, you mentioned before that government agencies are doing end runs around the Fourth Amendment because normally if they wanted to track someone, they would have to get a court order and then they would a subpoena would be given to a cell provider. But now, like why do you why do you, why even go to a court? I'm just going to go to a data broker and say, you know, let, let me see where you know Carrie's location has been, and it's from every you know a, a huge chunk of your mobile apps have been providing that information to data brokers, and so now I can I can track exactly where people have been. And you're like, well, well but Carrie, but who, you know who cares about Carrie? But but what about but what we now have in we're in a kind of a post-abortion rights America where. If you visited abortion clinic, it's now yeah. illegal uh, or to help facilitate an out-of-state abortion, you know, that's against the law to facilitate that or, or do that. And, and so now this location data can be weaponized against people, and that's the scary thing. Well, and, and even I brought up the row thing recently. There's some articles recently about location data being sold. Automatic license plate readers in California or in states that still uh, allow abortions being sold to other states that didn't. And of course, as we know now, there are states that will prosecute people who try to even help people to go across state lines to get abortions or find them or even put them in jail. And so there's that. And, and, but I want what it, I know 
the whole abortion thing is obviously very polarizing, but I mean, it's not just abortion. Think about buying guns, for example. So if you want to buy a gun, maybe it's the, the gun you want to buy. It's not legal in your state, but it is legal in the, in the neighboring state. But and maybe in some, I don't know if this is true, but let's say some states start having similar rules where, okay, not only can't you have this gun in the state, but if you go across state lines to buy it or facilitate that, I can find you and put you in jail. Again, this location data, it's it, it kind of, you need, we need, I think we need to separate ourselves from the particular application, even though obviously the post jobs yeah. world is one, but there, there are a lot of ways this could bite you and it doesn't, oh, it, well, it crosses like, political lines. Well, here, here's, here's, let's, even in, not in political lines, it's like that you can track who's going to, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, right? Mm -hmm. You can track who's gone to a cancer clinic. You can track who's gone to a mosque or a Catholic church, etc. And so you can now, like, well, tell me all the people that are Catholics. Well, the and who are who are who are the most devout Catholics? Well, let me geofence the Catholic churches in the Bay Area, and let me see all the phones that every Sunday they're going into the churches, right? Right, and, and it, so. Yeah, and that's, that's happening. That is that, that, that is not that a is hypothetical. Happening. That is happening. Exactly, it is. Oh, jeez. This is something that's always curious about, and because there's so little transparency, I don't. I'm sure if we even know the answer to this question, but how much of the information in the data being sold about me is actual raw data that they've gotten from purchases I've made or websites that I've visited or things like that? Or how much of it is inferred or correlated or or extrapolated from data I have? Like, for instance. I'm not diabetic, but there, but there was some medication I was on at some point that I bought that a lot of diabetics would take. And so, and once I started digging, I got all, I got started getting flooded with diabetic ads, like in the mail, like in the physical mail. And so there was obviously, there was an inference made there somewhere. Someone did a correlation and said, well, the people that buy these things, like the, the pregnant girl, same thing. They, they didn't yep. know that she was pregnant. They didn't see the results of a pregnancy test. They knew that the people who were, who are newly pregnant tend to buy these things and they were right. So how, how much of the data that is out there about me right now is actual raw data and how much of it is it inferred? And then the follow-on to that is how often it, is it inferred correctly or incorrectly? Well, with artificial intelligence, increasingly more and more of the data is going to be derived, right? And the goal of deriving data is to put people into segments. And so there's one data broker, Epsilon that has broken down U.S. households into 26 segments, like big spender parents, you know, or, but another data broker, Experian, uh, categorizes people into segments like credit-hungry card switcher and insecure debt-dependent. And even during the COVID-19 pandemic, Experian created different at-risk audiences that were more likely to default on mortgages and, and, and file for unemployment. So they look for leading indicators and then they put you into the segment, right? But the fundamental issue or multiple issues, but one of the big issues is that a lot of the data they get is incorrect. And then they take one bit or two bits of incorrect data and then they start doing the inferences and then it, that kind of puts you in buckets and so if you actually go about the process of requesting your data from some of the data brokers you'll be amazed how wrong they get it you know like one data broker had me single i'm actually married with a couple kids another had me as catholic that i'm not of the catholic persuasion i mean i can go down the whole list sure. and, and in fact nato did a survey because they were very concerned about how the 
data could be weaponized. And they actually found that 50% of data broker data was wrong. So they did a much b bigger survey th than wow. I did. So there's just a lot of, which makes sense because they're, you know, that to your point that, uh, they that because you may be using one drug, they're going to immediately infer that you have you know a certain condition, or you know maybe because you went to a store and bought adult diapers, it doesn't mean that you have that problem. It's maybe because you bought it for a relative, or mm -hmm. you know, or you're they were out of kids' diapers and you need something. <laughs> I mean, you can just go down the whole list right there, yeah. right? But the the reality is is that yeah of course they're going to get the data wrong but the problem is is that the segmenting also you know puts us in certain categories but it also the data is also used for scoring and scoring yeah. is when they aggregate the data and they say well who's most likely to not default on a loan or you know who would be a good tenant etc and then that can lead to people not getting uh, an apartment not getting a loan, not getting a job, et cetera, because the scores based on the data from the data brokers said, well, this person's at a high risk, at risk, um, et cetera. And that is not good because a lot of the data that went into your score may actually be incorrect or was improperly inferred as well. So we've, we're over-reliant on this type of data that, that people, as they try to rush to automate decision-making, that bad data in results in bad decisions. And that does have an impact that people can't get jobs, loans, apartments. The list goes on. Well, and I also wonder, and again, with the lack of the transparency, it's probably hard to know this for sure, but how many of the data sets that are out there are incorrect because of people with the same name or very, very similar names? You know, Tom versus Thomas, uh, you know, Rob versus Rob versus Bob versus Barbara, you know, the, it, and people with the exact same name that go by different, but different versions of that name, but they get somehow they get their wires crossed. Yeah, you could see that like in the people search sites. Like yes. if you Google yourself, they always have someone that they say is your relative, but it isn't your relative. So it's, it's one sense, it's scary that they knew exactly who my brother-in-law and sisters-in-law that have different last names than me that are in different states than me. And I was like, how the heck do they know that, uh, that, you know, this person is the wife of my wife's brother, right? That was just like, whoa, how did they know that? Right. But then yeah. they say like, I'm related to some other person who I've never heard of as well. So it's, uh, you could see that just immediately but you know that's part of the you know the you know what what they sell is their magic is that they can kind of figure all this stuff out etc. And I think the fundamental issue I have is is that a lot of the collection of this information we don't consent to number one, and number two it's a royal pain in the butt to actually try to get this data out at some point. And I think we'll probably talk about this later, but just the, the hurdles that you have to jump through just to get one of these people, one of these entities to delete your information is immense. And and, and given that there, we talked about 4,000 of them, I mean, it's just, it's not humanly possible to kind of right. clean this up. And there's all this day, bad data floating out there, uh, et cetera. But uh, I, I have some ideas and, and we're working on some of this stuff. 
Yeah, we, we, I, I tried to. I did a segment about this not long ago on the show about some of these people finder places, and I went to a couple of the big ones and tried to get my information out of there. And the first time I did it, I did it on my own, and you know, they said they wrote. I think I had, I think you had to write them a physical letter. Like you couldn't do this online. They make it, they make it not easy to delete. Or they say, it. "Give me your passport." Like, why do I need to give you my <laughs> right. passport? Like, like a copy of your passport to really prove it's. <laughs> right. But now I have to hand over even more valuable information, right. uh, etc. Right? You know, it's just like, oh my god. And then three months later, it, it you know three months later it was back. I think the, I think I had to write them twice to get them to take it down. When I finally went and searched for myself and couldn't find myself, I I set a note to remind myself because I knew this was going to happen to check like six or twelve months later, and of course it was right there back again. So what happens is is that the privacy laws are written that if you do a deletion request, after they they begrudgingly will finally delete the information, but that, that that's not a like a perma delete. Right, that they could then say, you know, what they could easily do is, is that, oh, you know, Carrie is request, you know, this information be deleted. Okay, we finally delete it. Then they call up another data broker and say, sell me Carrie's information, and they just repopulate it. There's nothing stopping that. Right, right. (laughs) Nothing like, oh, I don't know, say privacy laws. Yep. The other thing that I think is interesting that that. A lot of people might not be thinking about is back in the old days. Like there, there was a lot of what we call open source intelligence. It didn't used to be called that. It used to just be called public records. There's a lot of public records out there. You mentioned a few of them earlier. You know, marriage and divorce decrees. uh, You know, property sales. A lot of these things. Yeah. In the old days, you would go down to your local county clerk and you would talk to somebody when they were open from certain. You know, on eight to nine to five on Monday through Friday. Wait in line, pay five bucks maybe, and you could get you know, access to some public records. Today, it's 24-7, 365. A lot of it's free uh, or being sold at the back door to some other – And it, so, the, so the scale of it is so much different now than it used to be. You don't have to actually physically be present there anymore. And so now you can write computer programs that will go to the online county clerk office for every county in America. And, and scrape the data. And, and scrape the data. Yeah. And then they start combining it with others. So then the people search websites – not only have who your brother-in-law is, your phone number, your email address, and by the way, uh, you know, even though you may go to the FTC, do not call and say, don't call me, but that they're not a telemarketing firm, and so they'll publish your information. Of course, someone's going to buy that, right, uh, or, or, or take a look at it right there and kind of skirt around it, and then they also know how much you pay in property taxes, right? And then they say, but and you could see you could see the same information for your next door neighbor, right? So then people start saying, oh, this person only pays ten thousand dollars a year for property taxes. I'm paying twelve thousand or whatever. It's it's uh, it's crazy. And look, I understand you know public information in a lot of cases, et cetera. That's fine, and they have a business model that, that makes it easy, et cetera. But the business model should not preclude the ability for me to easily get this information taken down because it can be used against us by, you know, like if you're a domestic violence survivor, you probably don't want that information being posted. If you're a judge, you don't want that data being posted about you. And I can go down the whole list right there. So it's look, fine. They can have the right to do that, but I should have the right to say no and I should have the right to delete, and I don't. I shouldn't be in a situation that every three months, to what you experience, Carrie, I have to go back and do and whack the mole again. Right. 
as an engineer and a technologist, I love data. I love technology. I love the fact that we could do some of these things. I love the fact that I don't need to go necessarily to a county clerk's office in California to find that I do genealogy. So there are, there are times when I actually look through public sources of uh, information, this, you know, open source intelligence for some of my genealogy work. But I think the scaling of it, we need to do things like maybe rate limit these things, like, you know, so that the, the computer scrapers can get, sure, you can do this five times a day. They want to do it a million times a day. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, maybe they if they're limited to five times a day, you know, maybe that could at least curb some of these abuses. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We got to figure that out. Yep. So there have been some, I think, interesting, if maybe in a white tower kind of way, some proposals around controlling our data. And I've seen it come from different angles. Uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, I think it was Tim Berners-Lee, uh, who suggested this thing called SOLID, and that's an acronym for something, which I can't remember. But it, it, he envisioned uh, the system where we had, would own our data, and we would contract probably, we could we could self-host if we wanted to, but we could actually contract with a third party to say, okay, I want you to be the, the keeper of my data, and then I want you to govern access to it, and I will let you know who can have access to it. It's interesting. I'm not sure how, you know, it seems to be like as soon as somebody makes a copy that someone's going to sell that copy of it. But then there's like Google, who obviously makes a lot of money. I think like Facebook, they are an advertising company who happens to make a browser, who happens to make a search engine, yep. who happens to have Google Docs. I mean, they're an advertising company. They, because people have started blocking third-party cookies and trying to block all this tracking and they're getting all this pushback, they've tried to come up with some solutions that kind of balance what they think balance the needs lets us have the quote-unquote free web that's ad supported which you know they where they make their money and yet still share some data and they've had this thing called flock and they've and i think they've replaced that now with something else do you know of any technical solutions that would allow us to to split this baby to to have you know our cake and eat it too maybe is a better way to put that where we can have the quote-unquote free web that's supported by ads and yet not have our personal information be so broadly collected and shared yeah and actually we've had something up until recently it was called contextual advertising mm -hmm. um and contextual advertising is serving ads based on the actual content of the actual ad page. And so remember in the early days with Google, they served you ads based solely on the keywords that you typed, right? right. And so imagine, or just like with newspapers, they would have a travel section and people would place ads in the newspaper travel section for exotic des destinations. And the problem I mean, right. is- Contextual ads is the ads we had all throughout printing history until, exactly. until, until the internet came But out. now people have been convinced that behavioral advertising is so much better. But actually, when people do studies, they find that contextual advertising is just as good and does not have the overhead of collecting all the data. And so I've, I believe behavioral-based advertising has some serious problems. Problem number one is one-third of the, the, the people on the internet are kids, and I don't think we should track the behavior of mm. kids. Right. Mm -hmm. I, if that was done in the real world, that would be stalking. Second, mm -hmm. I, I believe that behavioral based advertising should not rely on sensitive information mm -hmm. such as healthcare, sexuality, ethnicity. And actually, ironically, in Europe, they passed this law called the Digital Services Act, which will explicitly ban behavioral advertising for children and using sensitive personal information. And so I think that's actually good, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if I think we kind of need to go back to the contextual advertising, which is based on the content, as opposed to tracking people, no matter what terrible places they, that people may go to. Because remember, 
if I go to some sort of conspiracy space uh, website and I click on an ad right there, then the conspiracy website gets funded through the behavioral-based advertising, right? right. Um, and frankly, probably the brand, even though they want, they want to target the person, does not want to be affiliated with having their ad on a conspiracy website as well. So the funny thing is, is that Google started doing contextual ads. This is how we've always done contextual ads, that, that you can – this, you can write basically you can use Google to scrape the internet and figure out the content on websites and then create a system which says you know do you want to place ads for you know like you have a hotel in um, Crete or Santorini then you could advertise on the the websites that that write about Santorini right right but, also, furthermore, you still can do – I'm still fine with some aspects of behavioral advertising. For example, uh, you can do location, but maybe it's not the, the exact precise location. Right. Maybe you, you, you expand it out. So if I'm looking for a plumber and I live in the Bay Area, right, you know, instead of it you know, collecting the information about exactly what street and block I am, you know, maybe you just kind of – Zoom it back out and say, well, Tom's in this county, et cetera. But mm -hmm. yeah, if I type plumber Palo Alto, then that should be pretty that should be good enough, right? Right. And if or if I sell diapers, then there's enough websites about babies and diapers, et cetera, that um, I don't have to actually peer into your purchasing habits, et cetera. To figure that out. So anyway, so I, I believe that uh, people are forgetting that contextual ads work pretty damn well and that we've been sold uh, that this behavioral advertising is the way to go about it when it's actually found that contextual advertising is just as good and does not have the overhead of collecting all that data. Right. Yeah. And just to, just to kind of paraphrase that back a little bit, I, I think that I, what I've always said is I'm 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 actually okay with ads. I mean, especially for the for the opportunity to to, to go to quote unquote free sites. I understand that 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 costs money. They need they need to fund that somehow, and a lot of people are averse to paywalls and actually subscribing to a web page. They just you know they just want to go read one article and be done with it and not have to. And fine if there's an ad on that page, that's great. So I, I'm not. I'm against tracking. I'm not against ads. And then the problem always is is I, I don't mind looking at ads, but I don't like it when the ads look at me. Right. And so that's, that's the distinction I like to make. The other thing is when you're saying that contextual ads and behavioral ads, um, are just as good. I, the way I usually think of that is it, oh, so let's say a, a contextual ad is half as effective as a behavioral ad, but it probably also costs ha half as much. Yeah. Right. So, so it's the people making money by charging more for this are, are the, are the, you know, the brokers there are the Googles and the Facebooks. Yes. And, and actually, it turns out that it's pretty unanimous with regulators and antitrust people that they've all believed that Google's ad tech business is anti-competitive in that they provide the software for the advertisers, they provide the software for the publishers, and they provide the exchange in which mm -hmm. bidding occurs. And uh, people have documented that for advertising, that Google itself makes up to 50% of the spend that occurs, right? Um, right? And so, you know, one of the themes that I have in my book is that these problems of privacy, uh, 
over collection of our data, etc., get exasperated by the fact that we have these large monopolies that are not feeling the competitive pressure to be more consumer protective. Um, and take into account, I know we've been talking about data brokers, but data brokers are the remoras to the big tech sharks. They play, especially the marketing and advertising folks, they play in the big tech ad tech ecosystem. They participate and they're used in the real-time bidding of ads to provide supplementary information based on a cookie that comes through. And so the reality is, is that because they own the ad tech ecosystem that they also, and they also provide the collection of information um, that they extract a lot more than a normal marketplace. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because of that, that they can kind of continue on their merry way of doing this over collection of, of information. And so, you know, if it was really kind of a, a, a more level playing field, that these companies would be pressured to do more as it relates to uh, privacy. Well, and some of this, you know, used to get covered under antitrust uh, in the United States, but the the notion of antitrust in the United States has shifted over the last 30, 40 years to be more about consumer harm in terms of price and price only. Yes. So if the, if, so for all these free products, the, the, the talk about uh, monopolies almost doesn't even make sense anymore under that consideration because there's, you're not paying anything. So there's no consumer harm because you're not charging anymore for this. Well, that was the revolution that happened. Uh, it was actually Robert Bork that uh, mm-hmm. brought that forth, and uh, and it's been adopted by a lot of the judiciary. Right. Um, but Biden has put in Lena Khan to be the mm-hmm. FTC chair, and they have more of a Brandeisian view where you need to look at also – yeah you just don't do it based on price. Is there harm to competition, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Because in the end, it turns out that they're actually downstream. There is actually harm, um, even though the product may be free. In this case, the harm is to the advertisers and publishers as evidenced by, and obviously there's been other issues associated with like the news industry, right. uh, but, but it's a decreasing amount of revenue because it's being extracted by the big tech companies. Um, so there, there are kind of related harms, but one thing I'll say is, is that many of your listeners may recall this thing called the Netscape browser and how it, it was this great technology. And then Microsoft said, okay, on Windows, you can only run Internet Explorer right? Mm-hmm. And it mandated Compact Dell to only bundle IE, right? Mm-hmm. And the DOJ went after Microsoft and they had to remove that uh, exclusionary policy. And that opened the door to Google to come out. And that really opened up the With internet Chrome, revolution. Yeah. Similarly, yeah. AT&T in you know was the dominant player it was broken up and we had the telecommunications revolution occur so yep. i think that the 
that you've had two things that have happened over the last 20, 30 years, which is that there have been no regulations as it relates to the collection of data, and there have been no and there's been no antitrust enforcement that has allowed these entities to acquire so many companies that gather additional information. We haven't even talked about Amazon and all the data that they collect. Oh, yeah. but, yep. but obviously Google, you know, and we could just keep busy just talking about Google and Meta and data brokers without even talking about others. Well, and Amazon's doing some really, really weird stuff with ring doorbells and law enforcement, and they want to, they're starting to sell you know, pharmaceuticals now, <laughs> like the, you know, yep. the tracking that was going to go on with that is just going to be scary. We've danced around the fact that we have not managed to pass any federal level privacy laws in the, in the United States. We've got a couple states, California being one of the main ones, uh, certainly uh, a couple of those have followed suit, have passed some privacy laws or maybe some anti-biometric laws and things like that. It's, it's a pitch of patchwork. And we could debate probably endlessly why that might be. But one thing that I keep thinking is, okay, so if we if we can't get a federal privacy law first, if we if, if that's just been too hard, what about transparency laws? What if we what if we just made it so that we knew who had our data, what data they had, you know, let us see where that data was, maybe force the companies that collected to tag it, like so your point earlier about we don't know where it came from. Maybe as you collect data, you've got to tag all that data and keep the tags with it so that at any point down the line, you could figure out where that was collected. And I think just, and this is my thing, and I'd like to get your take on this. If we could just have more transparency, if the consumer and the citizen was able to get a, have a better idea of what was really going on, I think that might drive us to have more laws. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I clearly think that there should be the equivalent of food labels, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there should be food labels that are clearly published. Apple's trying, Apple's trying that, for example. Yeah, for the mobile apps, apps right? Mm -hmm. yeah, nutri yeah, privacy nutrition labels. Mm -hmm. And I agree with, I, I think in the privacy policies that you have to accept probably should have like an executive summary. And so you should know how much sugar is in it and how much calories, uh, et cetera. So I, I do agree that that could be a good step. I think also that could be applied to AI as well that uh, there probably should be some nutrition labels associated with, you know, content. Is this been generated by a machine or by a human? Or if you're interacting with a chat bot or talking to someone on the phone, you know, you should have the right to be able to say, are you human or are you machined, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So I agree with that. But I also think at the end of the day, I mean, so that that's some incrementalism right there. But Come on, we, we do need a federal privacy law. I mean, you know, we're now up to 12 states that have a privacy law, uh, California being the first. I, I worked on the, as a full-time volunteer for six plus months, I, I was part of the, the team that worked on Proposition 24 that was the California Privacy Rights Act that passed in mm -hmm. 2020. The mm -hmm. reality is, is that 9 million people voted yes for that. And that's 9 million people said, yes, I want more privacy. That's 9 million people in California voting yes on that is like more more people saying yes than like the population of 12 or 10 or 12 states, right? Right. Similarly, when Apple came out with app tracking transparency, mm -hmm. AT&T, people mm -hmm. now say that 96% of people have turned it on, right? So mm -hmm. people want privacy. There, there is a motivation there, and we do need a federal privacy law. Now, look, I, I do realize that it got further in years past. It it passed the last year. It pa passed the House Commerce 
an energy committee 53 to 2, um, mm. but uh, it actually, because it preempted state law, uh, Nancy mm. Pelosi did not bring it up to the full house. Mm. I actually agree with that because I believe states should be laboratories of democracy and that any federal privacy law that we pass should act as a floor, not a ceiling, because right. technology moves so fast, you need the ability for at the state level to innovate right there. And if this ADPPA was so good, uh, as people said it would, then they shouldn't be embarrassed to, or they shouldn't fear having a preemption law um, that can go over and beyond that as well. And I think it's it's boded well for the nation that California, for example, has always been able to kind of set the consumer protection standard as it relates to auto emissions, and that's yep. driven a lot of things. So I, I, I believe, and most of the laws that we've passed uh, you know, have allowed states to innovate in this area. But look, we do need a federal privacy law. The states are moving ahead without the government. And I, I do agree that there's a concern about having a patchwork of, of you know, right. state laws. Just like today, we have a patchwork of 50 different data breach notification laws. And yeah. it, it drives me crazy that we don't have a federal data breach mm -hmm. notification law. That's another big thing I would love to, to have happen. Not only a privacy law, but a data breach notification law that, that centralizes things as well. But yeah, there has been a change in focus that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission under Chair Khan is doing more pushing the, pushing the envelope vis-a-vis -vis privacy. California now has a privacy protection agency that's on par with some of Europeans' supervisory authorities, like the, the, the you know data protection commissions that that are right. in the European countries. Clearly, the gold standard is, is GDPR in Europe, yeah. and so now uh, you know I think it's something that we should replicate finally in the U.S. We're getting low on time, but real quick, what do you think is really preventing us from having a federal privacy law? I think obviously at this point, people know about it, they want it. Why have we not managed to get it? I think there's there's two issues that are, have held things up. The first of which is a private right of action that, it, that if my mm -hmm. privacy is being violated, I should have the, the the idea is I should have the right to sue, right? And Republicans in Congress do not want the consumers suing that because they they're worried that it's just going to be lawsuit palooza. Sure. I actually think that there can be a compromise that you can have a narrow pride of right of action specific to identity theft as it relates to hmm. if the data is focused on like usernames, passwords that, that could be used to break into uh, people's accounts. So I think there could be a compromise there. The second issue is preemption. Ironically, you know, Republicans have historically been like state right people, right. but because of uh, concerns that the business community has about, hey, I still have to deal with the patchwork, they want to be able to have a privacy law that preempts any innovation that happens at the state level. I think that if you set the the floor high enough and, and not make a ceiling, then then there, there will only be one or two states, someone like California, that may go over and beyond the federal law. And I think that's that's manageable. So so I actually believe that uh, a federal privacy law should not preempt state law, um, and it should give the ability for states to act as laboratories of democracy, to paraphrase uh, uh, Justice uh, Brandeis, uh, and be able to, you know, 
build upon uh, any federal uh, law because it's, it's so fast moving and, and yeah. Congress takes so long. I mean, the last privacy related laws that we passed were that are of significance were HIPAA and Graham Leach Bliley. And that was in the nineties. And that was pre iPhone, pre right. Google IPO, et cetera. Right. All right. So as, as we wrap up, what are, uh, what are some things that we could do? Uh, preferably simple, preferably free, but not necessarily things we could do right now. What are some of the top tips you want to give to help prevent and limit the data collection of our private data? And, uh, you know, there are some interesting for pay ones out there as well. I don't know how good they are. Maybe you do. What, what are your recommendations to other people when they ask you, well, great. Now, what do I, what do, I do about all this? Given what we have today? First and foremost, you want to block the third party tracking. And so everyone should turn on, if you have a iPhone, you should tr turn on globally ATT, which is the app tracking transparency that blocks the third party trackers. Android doesn't have something similar. So if you have an Android device, download DuckDuckGo. You don't have to use it for browsing, but once you install it, it blocks third-party trackers from your mobile apps. It's incredible. I sit there and I look at it, and they say, like, in a week, it blocked 250,000 attempts, and it's wow. it's crazy. Um, you That's know, interesting, though. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it had that effect even outside the browser. That's great. Yes, it, it works in the background. And then I would install like EFF's Privacy Badger for Chrome. Like, if you're on a Windows system, that also blocks the third-party cookies. So that's what I would do immediately, which is, you know, stop the emission of your your data that gets fed to data brokers by blocking the, the mobile SDKs and, th and third party cookies. Also, on your mobile device, uh, they track you because every phone has a mobile advertising ID and you can mm -hmm. go in and just reset it to zero. And so you'll be part of the, the, the people that have the ID of zero as opposed to a very unique ID. And so everything I talked about, you know, it's within 30 seconds, a minute, et cetera. There are pay services that can block and delete your data from some data brokers. Um, mm -hmm. But what I'm working on in California is this California Delete Act, which would require the California Privacy Protection Agency to create a portal where you go, you put your, your your name, your email address, your mailing address, you hit the go button, and then it requires all the data brokers that are registered with the state of California to delete your data and do that on an ongoing basis. So you don't have to do the whole whack-a-mole thing. So I, I proposed that idea, I co-wrote it. So I'm putting my money where my mouth is when it comes to this stuff. Uh, that's California Senate Bill 362. It uh, passed the California State Senate. It's now winding its way through the assembly. Fingers crossed right there. But I would push your you know, your congressperson or your state person to do something similar and, and come up with a delete act that provides the kind of the equivalent of the FDC do not call registry, mm -hmm. but apply that to data brokers. So so and, and so you don't have to pay for a service and it would be mu much more comprehensive than a service. And I think that's important to call that out because a lot of these laws uh, have fathered other laws. And so it, it takes one state to set the to set the precedent. And then a lot of those laws do get copied almost directly in a lot of cases. In fact, that's how lobbyists do it a lot of cases too, is have, they, they, they write the laws for you and then they pass those laws in all the states. So yes, reuse what's already out there. There's no, there's no reason not to. And it, it's great. There's states like California who are thankfully out there leading the way in some of these things that helps the rest of us. Absolutely. All right. Last, last, last thing before we go, tell us, tell us about your book. What I'm, I'm sure we've covered a lot of it. Is there, what other things are, are in your book that, that we may have not talked about today and when does it come out? We definitely double clicked on chapters one and two. Ch chapter one was digital surveillance 
ones that that really focused more on what the big tech folks were doing in the ad tech ecosystem. Chapter two was about data brokers, and so we really covered that. But but the book also covers data breaches, and then but the really the big bigger focus I would say is looking at AI. You know what are the big tech players are doing with AI how bias can be introduced, how it can be exploited. And then in the end, I, I talk about, you know, the fact that these these folks are monopolies and it can exasperate the issues associated with overcollection as well as uh, AI. But I just don't want to be a Debbie Downer. I mean, I, 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 I do talk about like the positives of uh, mm-hmm. that, that big tech brings to the party. I talk about some of the threats to our civil society, our economy, our democracy. Uh, yeah. But I try to provide solutions. So you said, hey, you know, what are the things that people can do? I, I have an appendix where like all the things that people can do at a consumer level, like reset their mobile advertising ID, install privacy badger on Chrome, do this, do that. I have a complete set of documentation uh, on that. I also provide recommendations of stuff that you can literally hand your congressperson and say, this is what should be in a federal privacy law. Mm. And, I, and I provide other recommendations and solutions. So I just don't want to like, oh, here's all the problems and good luck. Right. I, right, I actually yeah. say, I, I try to look at things and say, you know what? There could be some simple problems. And I'll just say one last thing, just kind of summarize. We talked about privacy. And I talked about first-party data with like big tech companies, and I talked about third-party data with data brokers. If we were to have the Delete Act, where you could go to that one website and say, delete me, that would address the issues that we had with third-party data. That would give consumers. With first-party data, there's something called global privacy control that provides a signal um, mm-hmm. An opt-out signal that as you browse the web, it says to the websites, hey, don't sell my data. Don't sell my data. Don't sell my data, et cetera. And if we could get full support of the opt-out signal for first-party data, and we can get a na- and we can nationalize what I'm trying to do in California for third-party data with data brokers, literally within 30 seconds, you could send the message to delete my data and opt me out, et cetera. And that would be a simple problem to the fundamental issue that we have is that privacy is too hard for consumers. They have to spend too much time looking at, you know, these, you know, these lengthy terms of services. They have to contact people. They have to jump through hoops. And the tech companies purposely make it so difficult that people are like, screw it. I'm just going to accept it as is. And we shouldn't have to accept it as is. Agreed. Agreed. Tom, that was fantastic. I'm looking forward to the book. Tell me again, when does it come out? So Containing Big Tech is orderable now, and it's available in ebook, audiobook, and of course, good old-fashioned paper <laughs> copies. And uh, it comes out officially on August 22nd. But if you're listening to this before August 22nd, you can order it now, and it'll be a, a great gift that, that shows up in your mailbox or inbox uh, on that date. Well, I will, I will be doing that as soon as we get done recording. That's fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, Tom. Well, thank you for having me. This was great. Thanks again, Tom, for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun uh, and very, very informative. Can't wait to read the book. Uh, As he said, it goes into other areas that we didn't really get a chance to touch on today. And I think I did mention uh, a couple weeks ago that he was going to be having a LinkedIn panel discussion which he was going to co-moderate. That has actually already happened. It was last week. I watched it. It was great. If you missed it, there is a link in the show notes to the recording. I think it was, I think it was about an hour long. And they had some great people on the panel. They were talking about privacy and AI and, uh, and U.S. federal regulation. 
Speaking of which, the Delete Act has made some progress just since Tom and I talked. It has, I'm, I'm trying to understand where the process is. I think it just gone through the, the assembly in California. So it's out of the Senate and now it's through through the assembly committee. I think it's now headed to the assembly, uh, the assembly proper uh, for a vote. I believe it is expected to pass. So that is all very good news. If you want to read up more on uh, California Senate Bill 362, otherwise known as the, the, the Delete Act, there is a link in the show notes. And here's why, even if you're not in California, you should do that. Because, as Tom said, these things are often models used by other states to pick up the same thing. I mean, if someone's already put it into place, you know, why you know, reinvent the wheel? So talk to your local state representatives about this. And heck, talk to your U.S. federal representatives about it, too, saying, hey, I, this is great for California, but what about the rest of us? So seriously, contact your representatives and say, hey, this is, this is a good thing. We need that here as well. One quick note, we talked about how filling out warranty information cards is just another way that these companies like to gather information on you. If you've seen these things, the ones that come with the unit, they're usually the postcards or gosh, I hope not postcards. <laughs> Maybe they were, but the, you know, the warranty information cards that you fill out your name and the product and the serial number uh, to, to register your device. And I never used to do that. Certainly not when I was buying like appliances and things like that. Cause I knew it was just going to, you know, give away information and get me on a whole bunch of stupid mailing lists. The one thing I will say, though, now uh, is if you have a smart device that is something that has software running on it that is connected to the Internet, I have recommended that you do register those devices so that if there are recalls, if there are bad security problems, if there are data breaches, even just software updates, if the device doesn't have built in automatic software updating. That is one good reason to sign up. And you can lie about the rest of the stuff. If they say it's mandatory to give them your demographic information, you can just lie. It doesn't matter. Just make sure they have a way to contact you if there's something wrong with your device so that you can get that fixed. That is the only time when I would recommend filling out those stupid warranty information things. We talked a little bit about global privacy control, and that is the article that Steve Gibson from Security Now read my article on that basically verbatim during his podcast. So anyway, I've got a link to my original article on that if you're interested. That is in the show notes as well. And of course, uh, Thursday, my patrons will get the bonus podcast for the week, and I've got almost another half hour worth of chat with Tom uh, that they will be hearing. Well, we talk a little bit about, he's a tech investor, so we talk about what tech investors are investing in right now in terms of privacy tech. We talk a little bit more about regulation, uh, not just state, but federal, and a lot more. So anyway, patrons will be getting that as usual on Thursday. So next week, we got a new show, which will include the tip of the week, which will be my fourth and final segment on my series on protecting your home network. I've got several, several great interviews in the hopper, some really great discussions that, that will be coming your way. And I don't mention this probably often enough. I should, but you know, if you haven't already, check out the newsletter, check out the blog, you know, go to Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons. If you haven't for some reason checked it out yet, at least go look at the book. You can flip through it on Amazon virtually. And if you like all this stuff and you'd like to help support me do it, uh, go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons. Also looking for some fresh deer carry questions. The bin is getting low. So if you'd like to send me some questions based on some of the stuff we talk about in the show, uh, go to fdsd.me, my little personal Earl shortener. Uh, go to fdsd.me slash QNA for all the information on how to do that. And I will just say, I'll, I'll throw down the gauntlet here. Nobody has taken me up on the offer yet to actually read their question aloud on the air. If you want to send me a little 
wave file or mp3 file audio file of you reading your question i'll gladly play that on the air and then answer your question so anyway fdsd.me slash q a has all the details on that all right everybody we're already running along thanks for tuning in stay tuned next week for a new show subscribe if you haven't that way you don't miss anything and until next week everybody as always stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down <laughs>